Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. But today we are not going to talk about a specific mechanic or a specific game. Today we are talking about, let's say, more of a, of a strategy. And that might be the first, the first episode of um, a series of episodes, maybe two, maybe three, we'll see, um, about that topic. And um, let, me, let me explain where I started to, um, to come to that topic. Um, I asked myself... Why are games actually developed? What is, what is the starting point and how do we start to develop a new game? And um, I have to say, for me personally, and I think that's true for many people out there, it's often that we play a game and think, well, there's something, there's something odd. Or I can do that better. Uh, we need to fix that. I can do that. Um, and don't get me wrong that um, that's, a, that's a good approach. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but the result is oftentimes, um, let's say, maybe an incremental improvement of that game or maybe a combination of uh, some already existing games in the same genre for the same kind of, for the same kind of players. And um, in, when, you, when you look at, let's say, product development from a, from a more from a high-level perspective, not, not very um, focused on a specific product like games or so, let's say product development in general, there we have a lot of different strategies how to, how to create really new and improved uh, industry-defining new products or services. And uh, one, one method that is used for that is the Blue Ocean strategy. And um, I personally have not seen it before or uh, used or applied to uh, the gaming industry. And um, yeah, that's why I did a bit of research about it. I found, a, um, I found an interesting um, a scientific paper about it. And I thought it would be really interesting to apply that um, strategy that is uh, yeah, uh, commonly used in... Um, in the business world, um, to the gaming industry. And um, yeah, that's, that's what, I, what I did and that's what I want to talk about in the, um, in the show today and maybe also in, the, in some of the upcoming shows. So if you have no clue what I'm talking about at the moment, that's absolutely fine. I'm going to, to explain. I'm going to dive deep in, uh, in the entire um, concept of defining products for the blue ocean and I will explain you what that is. Um, but also talk about the red ocean, and I will also explain uh, what that is. So my goal really is to um, present that um, that model to you that can help you to um, define either a product that you are actually developing, like a game you are working on, um, or a future a future game that you that you want to de develop in the future. Um, this can be really helpful to get a crystal clear picture um, of um, your core components of the game. And um, by components, I don't mean uh, meeples or dice or so. I mean really the um, kind of value that you deliver to the, um, to the players. And um, it will also help you if you want to pitch the idea or the game to a publisher 
or it helps you to explain the core value of the game. What is the, the unique benefit that your game does deliver? So this is uh, really the strategy you can use to identify that. And you can do that in... Um, the best would be if you do it in advance before you start developing your game, but you can also um, apply it to a game you're currently working on. Okay, so let's start explaining what this strategy actually is. Um, it is called the Blue Ocean strategy, and it really considers two different playing fields. One is the red ocean, and the other one is the blue ocean. And the goal of the, um, the strategy, applying that strategy, is to identify a blue ocean. So what are these different oceans? Um, a red ocean is, let's say, a market area where you have a lot of competition, um, where a lot of blood is in the water, and that's why the, the ocean is red. Um, because there's a lot of competition and people are fighting over the, the, the customers in that market. And the entire strategy uh, centers around um, beating rivals. And um, yeah, if, if, you, if you win, um, it often comes with a cost. It's often a zero-sum win in that case. So what the strategy actually um, tries to teach you is how to identify the blue oceans, the, the market space um, that is currently uncontested, where the entire strategy centers around new innovation, uh, creating new kind of value and attracting new customers. Um, yeah, and it really, it pushes uh, companies to create entire new industry. Sometimes they are disruptive, but they don't have to be. Um, but the goal really is to um, to break out of that competition in the market and create something something new that you can oftentimes also um, ask people to buy premium prices for. But that's not necessarily the case. So in short, what you're going to do is you're going to create that blue ocean in the market by um, identifying factors that the players really care about that is the core of that strategy you identify the factors that people really care about and then you focus on them and you discard all the remaining factors that cost you a lot of money when you produce the product but they actually don't care that much about so it's not you do not try to become the the best in all of the categories no you try to identify um certain areas that you become the best in um, but you also accept that in some categories your product might be uh, worse or weaker than, than your competitors but you, since you have identified or uh, analyzed the market um, you are confident that those categories and those um, aspects of your game um, are not as important to the customers yeah? so you try to attract um, new type of customers new type of industry um, instead of really focusing on people of a very specific genre for example so you wouldn't say um, i'm going to develop the next um, collectible card game or so and then do everything um, uh, exactly the same as magic did um, and just add some new keywords for example that would be a very bad example of uh, uh, going into a competition you probably can't win um, and go into a, a red ocean one example that uh, the book uses that explains the blue ocean strategy is uh, the Cirque du Soleil um, it is um, 
a circus that um, yeah managed quite well um, to identify a blue ocean in a very competitive uh, circus industry yeah um, by creating a new uh, theatrical show um, that combined the acrobatics uh, with some kind of premium theater experience and they did this by decreasing significantly their costs because they 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 got rid of certain things that people or customers um yeah didn't really care about anymore for example they removed the entire animal acts aspect from the circus industry um so they did not have to to pay wages for um um animal um handling people they didn't have to um yeah take care of the animals, uh, carry them around the, the, the globe, uh, training them, transporting them, and so on. And um, they um, also they didn't feature really kind of uh, clowns or whatsoever. So they really focused on one, one very specific aspect of it. And um, they put a lot of effort into... Um, that high-level experience like music, lightning, storyline, um, artistic uh, stuff. And um, they made it more like, a let's say, a Broadway show or so. And um, they, since they wanted to sell it as some kind of high-level experience, <clears throat> they also invested in comfortable seats um, instead of that, um, yeah, hard benches that people knew from, from, from other circuses. So um, they created them uh, a, a new kind of value for the people. It was some. It was a different experience. If you if you uh, go to a normal circus or to a Cirque du Soleil, um, it feels completely different. Um, so they are not in direct competition with um, the classical circus industry anymore. And that's what they achieved by their new strategy um, with an entirely new offering. Um, that's just just one example. The book has many, many more examples. One of the best examples I can think of of the gaming industry is, uh, let's say, Dominion as a game. Um, because it created a whole new genre, like um, the deck building genre, where... Um, other games before Dominion really focused on uh, building the deck prior to the game that you used to play against an opponent. Um, but then Dominion really focused on that part of, of deck building as the game. That is the entire game. So they really um, got rid of certain aspects uh, that these other games that they probably copied from um, had like all of these uh, strategy card games uh, really focused on uh, direct combat life points and so on and they got rid of all of that and just focused on uh, the deck building part and really really um, created all of the cards around around that specific part and in the end they they ended up by creating a whole, a whole new genre that really was a blue ocean and th that's one of the reasons why the game is so successful and why so many other games uh, copied it and um, yeah now the deck building genre itself it's it is a, a red market now um, and all of the expansions that uh, dominion 
delivered afterwards are kind of uh, just incremental additions in a red market where they are have direct competition now because other players um, might uh, prefer one of the other deck building games that came out later like i don't know ascension um also um or um core worlds which we talked about here on the show also and um, yeah now they are in the red market so that really is a good example to to explain you why i think um blue ocean strategy and red ocean strategy are both relevant in the board game industry yeah um, of course if you start from scratch and so on it can be really helpful to identify that blue ocean and develop a game for the blue ocean um, and i would really recommend to do that but let's say you already have a very successful product or you have a product that you want to um want to improve um, then you are more or less in the um oftentimes in the red ocean strategy of course you can try to um, identify um, aspects or move it into a direction that is kind of a blue ocean um, but yeah it often is just an incremental improvement of the game or an expansion of the game and i think in the board game industry that is actually a fine thing to do um, because you have then a fixed player base and um, yeah you want to um, extend the life cycle of of a game of course with expansions and so on so um, i wanted to talk today a little bit about the strategies that um, games like magic which i will use as an example today um, use um, to yeah to come up with new ideas in a in a red ocean yeah, you know you are in a red ocean, um, you have a product there and you might not be able to change everything in, on, about that product to, to really move it into a blue ocean. So um, that are the two things which I think are relevant. You want to extend the life uh, cycle of a product that is in the red ocean. Yeah, and if you want to um, come up with a new product, um, you might want to 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 find a blue ocean for that and identify that. Um, so today we will talk a little bit more about um, the um, the strategies to um, add new stuff, especially for card games in the red ocean. And I will use Magic as an example. And um, next week I will be diving deeper into that blue ocean strategy and give you. Um, the tools and explain you the tools um, how to how to identify that blue ocean um, yeah so as a summary before we dive a little bit more into the red ocean as a summary the red ocean focuses on an existing market while the blue ocean focuses on identifying new markets the red ocean is pretty much about beating competition um, and in my example that I will use today, it's about extending the life cycle of a game and improving the game step by step incrementally. Um, while the blue ocean strategy is more about how to avoid competition at all. And um, the red ocean is also about yeah, exploiting an existing demand, a demand that's already there. Um, you know that demand and you just uh, need to be a little bit better than the competitors or um, add another kind of theme on top of it to uh, attract the people there in that market. Um, but it's about exploiting an already existing demand. Um, the blue ocean, on the other side, is about finding 
that unsatisfied demand that no one else has satisfied so far. And um, yeah, the last differentiator between those two strategies is um, uh, the on the red ocean strategy, you typically uh, try to differentiate by focusing on um, either lower costs than the competitors and maybe a lower selling price. Um, that is one strategy or um, by delivering a higher well value than the competitors. And in the blue ocean strategy, you can actually pursue several strategies together to create value. So you can try to be the, um, the cost leader in one aspect, but also um, have the highest customer value um, in another category, for example. So it's more of a combination of different, uh, different strategies there. So we will talk about that. Yeah, okay, but that's about the, the, the stuff that I wanted to um, explain about those blue and red oceans in general. And uh, now I wanted to take a little bit of a look at um, yeah, Magic the Gathering because I'm so impressed by the game, how they managed to yeah, innovate in a market for 20, more than 25 years now. They come up with uh, small little innovations over time um, some of them being smaller innovations, others being a bit uh, uh, bigger innovations, but they they somehow managed to um, yeah always be on on top of the curve and um, yeah stay attractive to their to their to their customers. So um, even though a lot of other games really try to create new markets around them and um, uh, yeah compete with them about the about the players um, magic always yeah kind of stayed on top or at least close to the top um, and i wanted to to talk a little bit about the different um kind of uh yeah changes they made to the game um in order to um to succeed and um that really is based on an article of uh Mark Rosewater on um, the Magic Mothership side, where they where he talks about um, the future of Magic and um, in which areas they identified the potential to innovate, and um, that is also I think it's very interesting because uh, it shows a little bit how they think, how where they are looking for innovation in a game that they have already created 25,000 cards or so for. Um, and I find that really interesting to see what kind of areas they, um, they want to put their effort into, um, yeah, to innovate. And um, the first one really is to um, expand existing mechanics. So they look into, um, into the past and look what kind of mechanics they have, they have created. Um, and then they think about how could we use those mechanics that we already have in the game that all of our players know already and might, maybe they love it already. Um, how can we use it in a different way? Um, and that could be some kind of static ability or keyword um, that they have used in the past. Let's say like cycling or so. Um, it is a, an ability that lets you discard a card from your hand um, in order to draw another card. You typically have to pay some kind of uh, resource for that. Let's say pay two mana to discard a card from your hand and then draw another card. That lets you cycle through your deck and find the stuff you need to play. 
Um, and um, in one of the recent sets, they managed to create a whole new environment around it um, by um, adding new cards um, that, for example, uh, cared about cycling as an effect. Um, for example, they have added cards that say, whenever you cycle a card, effect X happens. So what they did by that is they have this more or less static on its own keyword uh, cycling and created an entire, let's say, engine around it. You can play cards that interact with it um, and therefore it becomes kind of an uh, of a strategy, a plan that you can um, that you can that you can use to win to win the game. Um, so it can it becomes its own play style. Um, they also looked at um, let's say new effects they could add to the card. Um, for example, um, the card could say, uh, when you cycle this card, effect Y happens. So it's not only other cards that interact with the cycle effect. Uh, you could uh, also make cards that do not just draw a card when you cycle them, uh, but they do something else on top of it. Um, and um, they also, in the beginning, cycling was very um, always costed two mana to activate. And um, yeah, nowadays they are kind of a bit more flexible with that. Um, so the cycling costs and the cycling effects have been, um, yeah, have been very different in the in the um, in the last couple of sets, and um, also in the sets uh, after that, uh, after cycling appeared for the first time. And uh, yeah, instead of just a drawing card, they added stuff like land cycling, where you when you cycle that card, you can go th look through your deck and uh, search um, a specific land card um, and so on. Another example of the same category um, would be um, that they kind of try to change the environment a mechanic is used in. Um, and there, for example, let's take the, the, the proliferate effect, which uh, says that you uh, can put a, a counter on all of the cards, an additional counter on all of the cards that have a counter. Yeah. Um, so let's say you, you use that mechanic in a set with a lot of um, minus one, minus one counters. That means whenever you proliferate, all of the creatures get weaker. Um, and let's say you also have poison tokens in that, uh, in that set. That means when you have a certain amount of poison tokens as a player, you die. So when you proliferate, you get more and more poison, poison tokens over time. Um, if you have that, proliferate is kind of a very destructive mechanic because it, it uh, uh, makes creatures weaker and pushes you towards losing the game. But then they brought that mechanic back later and kind of Used, reused it, but kind of innovated um, about it without changing the mechanic at all. So it still added another counter to cards that already have a counter, but um, they then used it with a lot of plus one, plus one tokens in the set. So instead of uh, weakening creatures, it made creatures bigger. Um, and they also used it with a lot of loyalty counters on planeswalkers. So instead of... Uh, yeah, dying from poison as a player, your planeswalkers uh, uh, grew bigger and bigger and were able to use their very powerful abilities. Um, so instead of being a, a destructive mechanic, it was a very constructive mechanic in that sense. 
So I find that really impressive how they can go back to what they have already created and use it in a different in a different way. That is uh, that is really impressive for me to come up with some kind of inno- innovation um, for a specific game without taking a look at the entire market. Yeah. So what else uh, do they look for when they try to innovate? They also um, look at the card frames, um, and they. Um, have used many, many different kind of card frames in the beginning. Uh, in in the meantime, uh, while they were in the beginning very hesitant about uh, messing around with the card frame, it stayed the same for a very long time. Um, their traditional frame, but uh, then they used kind of uh, split cards. For example, they printed two cards uh, on one card, um, and they, according to Mark Rosewater, this added a lot of lot of design space in um, in different ways. Yeah, um, by messing around with the card frame. For example, uh, all of the people really love transformation effects yeah, um, because it just fits very well with the theme of the game. So there are werewolves, there are vampires and all of that stuff that really transforms from one side to another. And it's really hard to um, to put all of that on one card. So it it, it is difficult to to show the transformation. Yeah. Um, in the art for example but it's also difficult to print the entire text and abilities on, on, on the limited space that you have on a card so by having double faced cards for example um, yeah that's a perfect answer you have one creature it is in that that form and then somehow it transforms and becomes something completely different and um, yeah they have played around with that uh, quite a bit in the meantime um, they will do in the future as well and um, yeah use this kind of transitioning cards um, in the future as well they also um, innovated in a way that i didn't think they would move into that direction and that are the punch out cards yeah they um they uh, yeah have those little cards that have the same size as, as magic cards um, but they have some kind of let's say tokens um, that you can punch out of the card and can then use to uh, use in the game to I don't know represent a, a new keyword for example so that uh, um, it can be referenced. We have that in the um, I have recorded an entire show about that topic. And for example, they can also be used as very thematic counters, like brick counters in the set of Amoncat, where they where you try to build a, a pyramid, pyramid, for example, with those with those brick counters. Um, that's kind of it's kind of different. It is something that Magic itself has never done before, and I have not seen it in many games that really restrict themselves to be only card games. So um, it was kind of an incremental improvement they didn't create an entirely new market around that yeah um, i don't think they attracted a lot of new customers with it um, but it helped them to retain their customers that they have because um, it was something new it was something to play around with and um, yeah they um, i think the player base needs those different different moments of incremental uh, changes in those games to yeah to stay motivated to explore more and more and more Another thing that they did sometimes is to have some kind of uh, card components outside the deck. Let's say like tokens or so. Um, But 
more like not representing a, a, a creature or so that can be created during the game and that is the token that is in the game, more like a new rule added to the game uh, with a new card, um, such as the Monarch card. What does the Monarch do? It's kind of a static effect on a card. Um, it says, at the beginning of your end step, you draw a card. And um, yeah, only one player can be the Monarch and um, no one starts as the monarch so it is an incentive to um yeah to 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 attack early on because on the card the monarch it always also says whenever a creature deals combat damage to you its controller becomes the monarch so um the first player who deals damage becomes the monarch and then afterwards whenever someone deals damage to you while you are the monarch um he or she um, becomes the monarch themselves so it's kind of a a new rule that is added to the game afterwards which um, creates kind of an incentive in multiplayer games to um, yeah to attack early on and i really like that because they keep the base game as it is but they found some way to add new rules for specific situations um, by having those um, card-based components outside of the deck Another area where they are looking into um, improvement in, um, and innovation is the area of additional decks. Um, they didn't use it very often, um, but um, and not in a in a in a black bordered set. That means not in a tournament legal set. But they have the contraptions in um, in one of the unsets, which are their um, their fun sets, which. Um, have a lot of cards where they experiment um, into specific directions, um, but they are not tournament legal. And um, the contraption deck is really a second, a second deck, um, and it creates a bit of, let's say, identity or personality um, because you can have those uh, this this second deck full of contraptions, um, where you which you then use to try to to build some kind of machine. Um, and the cards themselves represent the different pieces of that machine. Um, yeah, it is a cool. It's a cool aspect because it is. It feels like a different kind of mini game um, that you play in addition to the magic game, but it also adds a lot of complexity and additional elements. And I think that is something that they really are hesitant about and that's the reason why they don't bring it to the core game and the tournament legal play i think it's it's another piece they would have to to balance and um, it would prolong the games and so on so um it's a fun aspect they they they, they added it to the game um, but they w maybe will use it <laughs> sometime in the future in a black border game uh, uh set but at the moment they didn't um but um yeah they also identified or worked into the direction of um, somehow affecting the deck construction aspect of the game by um, having cards that have a direct impact on yeah your deck construction uh, construction um, those are the the companions which they um, had in Ikoria one of the recent, more recent sets and um, yeah by, by putting one of those companions into your deck you get some kind of restriction to the deck building for example your deck can only contain spells or so and you are not allowed to put any creatures into that deck um, that is um, also very interesting change um, 
because um, yeah, it is something new and exciting because uh, people really have to approach deck building from a certain from another angle and think about whether that this very strong companion card is worth um the restriction that it comes with i like those kind of uh kind of trade-offs um uh strong cards that don't come with just benefits but also with a cost um yeah and other examples um maybe not so much from the from the um from the magic universe but from from other card game universes are um all of these hybrid games that kind of uh, use let's say um object recognition or a barcode or so to add some kind of um mobile added value to the game by scanning the qr code you get some kind of uh, kind of clue to to solve uh, a riddle or so i don't know or um in keyforge by scanning the qr code you kind of uh, get the ability to store your deck on the on the smartphone and compare it with with other decks how how strong it is and so on and so on so um those kinds are uh, all of the um ideas innovations that um magic and other card games use to innovate in a already very saturated market but as mentioned i think they are necessary if you have a product and if you want to develop that product further into a certain direction and entertain your player base um, prolong the life cycle of your users and so on you need those kind of uh, of kind of strategies and i think magic is the best example out there because they manage to um yeah to keep the interest of their player player base for decades and um, yeah i found it interesting to to take a bit of a deeper look into um, the areas they see more innovation for the future and um, yeah but i doubt that they will be able to create an entirely new blue ocean in that universe i don't i don't think so um, i think this is something you as a maybe newer game designer can do or with a new game that they develop maybe they will do it i don't know but um when you start from scratch that really is the best moment to think about a new blue ocean i know um many people have the goal to uh create a very successful game like i don't know dominion or let's say one of those other genre-defining games like I don't know Risk Legacy as one of the first uh, legacy games. That's something that also came to my mind because it does something really different. Um, yeah. So if you are also interested in the how to um, identify a blue ocean, that's something we are going to talk about next week. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show today, uh, in which we defined what a red ocean and a blue ocean actually is and um, how games like magic manage to find innovation over and over again to um, yeah keep the customer game base and sell expansions uh, for their game so that's it for today i hope you enjoyed that uh, first part of the blue ocean 
Strategy Podcast Show. So until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye.